right. I think we can uh, we can start. It's um, good afternoon again, everyone, or good morning if uh, anyone is uh, watching us from the uh, from the uh, from the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, my name is Davide Luca, and um, I'm the moderator today. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Cambridge, uh, Old Cambridge, and uh, also a visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Center. Um, before we start, let me remind the, the running order for today. So we are going to have uh, two presentations of uh, 15 minutes each, around, uh, more or less. Then we will move to the Q&A session. Uh, if you have any questions, please uh, type them in the Q&A box that you see at the, at the bottom of the screen. Uh, as anticipated, the event is recorded uh, and, uh, and also live streamed on Facebook. And uh, if, you are, if you would like to tweet about the event, uh, we have a hashtag on the, about the, for, for the LSE Middle East. So it's, uh, in fact, hashtag LSE Middle East altogether. Um, and before we start with the presentation, let me uh, greet our guests today. And it's a great pleasure to have uh, uh, Professor Melanie Kamnet from, uh, from Harvard University. Uh, we tried to, uh, to, um, to have her for, for some time and we finally managed to, uh, to have her here. Um, uh, professor Kamet, of course, is a Clarence Dillon Professor of International Affairs at the Department of Government in, in Harvard, as a, also Chair of the Harvard Academy of International and Area Studies. And she also has a second appointment at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. So it's, uh, it's very appropriate and, uh, for, the, for the topic of today. Um, her current work focuses on the overall on the identity politics, uh, welfare, uh, development, and in intersections of these topics. Uh, she's a co-editor of the Cambridge University Press. She's, brought, she's written numerous books on the, on the Middle East, on the welfare provisions in the Middle East. Uh, in particular, I would like to uh, underline uh, Compassionate Communalism, Welfare and Sectarianism in Lebanon, uh, again published with a um, uh, actually with the Cornell University, University Press, which won the American Political Science Association Giovanni Sartori Book Award. Uh, together, she wrote other important books, for example, The Political Economy of the Middle East, which is a, a, a reference for many of us working on the Middle East. Uh, our second guest today is uh, Asle, Dr. Asle Jansunar from uh, uh, Oxford University. Uh, she's a postdoctoral research uh, fellow at the Nafil College and the Department of uh, Political Science and International Relations. Uh, she's also on the job market, so if any, is there anyone in the, in the audience uh, looking for, uh, to hire someone, uh, please consider her research. Um, Asl's work is very interesting because combines his uh, focuses on the Middle East, of course, and, and focuses on the welfare provision and combines very innovative data sources uh, and the historical data as well. So, for example, she has a book project on the on the politics of a charitable welfare provision in, Ottoman, in the Ottoman Empire, which is a, a very fascinating uh, fascinating project. And she works at the intersection of a uh, political science, economics, or so applied analysis, and uh, GIS and uh, and uh, and, uh, and uh, experiments. So we are very lucky today. And um, with, uh, with with this presentation, uh, perhaps uh, we can start with. Uh, uh, Melanie, if uh, if you want to start your presentation, the floor is yours. I see you are uh, mute, so. Okay, great. Um, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you to the LSE Middle East Center and to Davide for hosting this. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on this panel with Asli. 
Um, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Um, and hopefully everyone will be able to see that. Um, great. Well, I'm going to speak today um, about uh, several projects and more broadly about some of the research I've been doing in Lebanon um, related to healthcare. And um, I just first want to note that, um, as Davide mentioned, I've been working on a variety of uh, relevant topics. Uh, he mentioned uh, my book, Compassionate Communalism. Uh, which focused on the welfare activities of a number of the major sectarian parties in Lebanon. And that book, the process of researching and writing that book, got me interested in this broader topic of the politics of non-state welfare, um, well, which is a broader phenomenon that, um, you know, is something worth studying both in developing countries and developed countries. Um, and uh, and made me start thinking about um, the nature of provision, uh, how it varies by provider type, and how people access welfare um, depending on where they are receiving their services. So, um, so today I'm going to talk about two specific projects uh, coming out of a research project in Lebanon that focus on access to services and uh, highlight both demand and supply dynamics there. And in particular, I'm going to draw on a study I conducted with Aitu Shashmaz, who is a, uh, a PhD candidate in the government department at Harvard. And, um, and we carried out this study with a number of other collaborators uh, in the US and in Lebanon. Um, and uh, Aitu and I have been working on a few papers coming out of this. And so I'll speak about some of those. Um, and let me just give a, a little, a broad outline of what that project consisted of in terms of data collection and what we were looking at. And so in broad terms, we were uh, asking the question uh, in one of the papers about how diversity, and here I'm referring to diversity as politicized ethno-religious cleavages. We know that many places are diverse, but those cleavages are not necessarily politicized. So we're talking about places where they're explicitly politicized and therefore may have an effect on the nature of public goods provision. And our study focuses on the facility level, which has not received as much attention in the literature on diversity and public goods provision. And one of the questions we address here is how do citizens navigate and experience welfare regimes in this context where you have politicized divisions and where you have a variety of public and non-state providers offering welfare goods. Um, and uh, specifically, does this context shape where people seek services? Um, and when they do go to uh, facilities from their own communities or other communities, do they have different experiences? Um, and then another paper that I'll briefly reference, and again, we're doing just short presentations, so I'm going to give you sort of the greatest hits of these projects and not go into great detail, but another project looks at how refugees experience service delivery in their host countries. And in, since we're looking in the Lebanese context, which has the highest per capita concentration of refugees, we're looking specifically at the experience of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Um, and let me just say at the outset, um, that both of the outcomes, uh, the outcome in both of these papers is a measure of the quality of primary health care, uh, which is something that has received extensive attention in public health, but very little attention in political science and other social sciences. And we are using a validated measure of process quality, 
the process of delivering care that includes a composite a variety of indicators such as how much time does the doctor spend with the patient, how many questions did the doctor ask, how many examinations did they carry out, and that sort of thing. Um, so our study, which we call the Lebanon Facility Level Study, um, con consisted uh, focused on primary healthcare facilities in a network of over 220 centers that was overseen by the Ministry of Public Health, but where services are actually delivered by a variety of types of providers, a quarter of which are affiliated with various public sector institutions, and then the others are affiliated with either with political parties, uh, religious charities, or non-affiliated, what we might call secular NGOs. Um, and um, we, took a representative uh, sample from this broader network of 69 centers. And we, uh, I too and I went to Lebanon and recruited and trained a team with the help of an excellent project manager who then, uh, the team then went out and carried out a number of surveys at these 69 centers. So uh, they surveyed about 200 doctors, uh, on a variety of questions and also administered a knowledge test. Um, they, they carried out about uh, 1,200 exit interviews with patients. They observed the medical examinations of these patients. Um, they carried out surveys with the chief medical officers, collected administrative data. And then one of these uh, enumerators, we trained to carry out follow-up interviews with doctors in a, a random sample of these centers. Um, and it's important to recognize that the data collected from all these um, modes of data collection are matched across centers, doctors, patients. So we can identify which patient saw which doctor in which center. Um, and, you know, at risk of sounding defensive, um, you know, in the ideal world, we would have randomly assigned patients to centers, but we were not able to do this and felt kind of ethically uncomfortable with the prospect of doing this. But there were political obstacles as well to doing this, and uh, some of the questions were a bit sensitive as well about political and religious views and identities and so forth. Um, so I, I first want to talk about the paper that looks at how uh, citizens navigate welfare regimes and what kind of experiences they receive at different types of centers. And so we, here we focus on Lebanese citizens only and look at uh, their experiences in centers when they go to one from their own religious community or one from outside of their religious community. And the first thing to highlight here very briefly is that there's enormous selection effects. So this is non-random. People select into overwhelmingly centers from their own community. That's what this figure here is showing you, this Sankey diagram that, you know, on the left you have patients, on the right you have centers, and you can see that there's a real match between where what people's uh, reported religious identities are and what kinds of centers they go to. Now, I'm not implying that everybody goes to centers from religious actors or sectarian political parties. That's not the case. About half of people um, go to centers that are not affiliated, and we can talk about what goes on there as well. Um, so then the question is, what happens when they go to a center not from their own community? Um, so there's an enormous literature in the social sciences on diversity public goods provision that overwhelmingly finds that there's a diversity deficit, that public goods outcome, economic outcomes, social outcomes are worse in diverse communities, particularly when those social cleavages are politicized, really. 
And we find support for that at this micro level, at the facility level, that, um, that uh, you know, the experience that the patient has when they are an outgroup member that is not from the same community as the facility is worse, is inferior uh, when the patient is an outgroup member. And we look into the reasons for this and we find uh, some evidence that suggests that shared social networks is, are at play here. And the fact is that outgroup patients are less likely to have a social connection with the facility, with the doctor. And we know this from the clinical observations that our enumerators carried out where they recorded whether there was discussion of common social connections. And outgroup patients who do not mention a social connection during their examination have uh, experienced worse process quality by these measures than those that do. Um, so that's one uh, potential mechanism which is in line with the sort of more macro level research on diversity and public goods provision. Um, we, there may also be a, a political proselytism effect going on here, uh, which would be in line with prior work that I and others have done in Lebanon, where we know that patronage and clientelism are important features of access to welfare goods. And, um, and uh, it, you know, Lebanese citizens, uh, some of them at least, uh, have to take advantage of patronage and clientelist connections in order to gain access to services. Uh, and this is not something that Syrian patients enjoy. They don't have these kinds of connections uh, because they are not hooked up into these patronage networks. And we do not find the same kind of outgroup disadvantage when Syrians go to centers outside of their own religious uh, communities, um, which suggests that there might be something going on here, but this is by no means smoking gun evidence. It is in line, however, with prior gun, uh, prior um, research that I and others have conducted. Um, so let me briefly in this kind of greatest hits summary say a few words about the another paper that we've been working on out of this project, and this really looks at the experience of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. And as I think everyone is probably well aware, um, Lebanon has experienced a massive influx of Syrian refugees. And uh, Lebanon, before this refugee crisis, was already under great strain. And the Ministry of Public Health had been taking enormous efforts to try to roll out uh, more comprehensive health care to disadvantaged populations in Lebanon. And, uh, and they were doing this through the very network where we carried out our research. And it also happens that the network of health centers overseen but not necessarily administered by the government is the one where that receives most of the Syrian refugees seeking health care. So it happens that in our study, about half of the patients that we uh, interviewed were Syrian. So we had a sort of roughly even split between Syrians and Lebanese, which is in line with estimates that others have conducted uh, based on research others have conducted. So that enabled us to look at the experience of Syrian refugees in Le Lebanese health centers. And this is a paper, another paper we've been working on. Uh, and in this paper, we find some evidence of anti-Syrian bias, even among educated professionals. Um, this is you know, certainly well-documented in public opinion research among the general population. When you slice and dice public opinion data, it seems to also be uh, prejudice against Syrians also seems to be a phenomenon among educated professionals. And we had a conjoint experiment in this project that suggested 
that uh, Lebanese doctors do not prefer to work in centers with lots of, lots of Syrian refugees. And there's also uh, in a large literature in the public health uh, um, field that looks at racial concordance and finds evidence of discrimination when, for example, white doctors treat black patients in the United States. So there is a larger literature in public health that shows that even doctors can harbor uh, a sense of prejudice against certain types of patients, outgroup patients. And so we find some evidence of this. And the question is, in light of this, or in light of the potential for prejudice or bias against refugees, what kind of experience do re refugees get at these health centers? Um, do they get treated equitably, do, or do they experience inferior care? And so we uh, run a series of analyses that show pretty convincingly that in uh, Lebanese health centers, uh, that, and I should mention that the network we carry out uh, our research in is, uh, provides subsidized care largely to low and lower middle income patients. So this is not the for-profit private sector where anyone with money goes to receive healthcare in Lebanon. This is the subsidized uh, center targeting lower income populations. And we find evidence that Syrians are treated equitably in these centers and even in some centers they receive slightly superior care by these process quality measures. Um, and so we in this paper try to probe what's going on here and find some evidence for two factors, um, which we call the, the international NGO effect and public health imperative. So let me briefly before concluding, I know I'm short on time here, spell out what I mean by these two uh, potential mechanisms here. So, um, so, um, so just to cut to the chase, and then let me explain the logic here, we find that uh, being Syrian, a Syrian refugee getting treated in a health center that is in partnership with an international NGO, you are more likely to get superior attention and care by the doctor. And so what is the possible logic here? Well, um, we tested a number of mechanisms uh, that might explain why Syrians get superior care in some places. And, and we, we test a number of things that you might imagine, like do they see doctors that are more altruistic? Do they see doctors that are more professional? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is it because of different health conditions that get presented by Syrians versus Lebanese? And we don't find support for any of these kinds of explanations, but the one that seems to be at play uh, and it's not to say that there aren't altruistic professional doctors. There are many altruistic professional doctors, absolutely, uh, who are you know, uh, doing her Herculean, exerting Herculean efforts to treat these patients. Um, but we find that those centers that receive uh, uh, support from an international NGO, like the UNHCR, are exhibiting higher quality care for these refugees. And, um, and a, a number of factors might be at play. First of all, those centers might be benefiting from additional resources coming in a variety of forms from international NGOs and have an incentive to perform at a high level in order to keep the flow of resources. We also think there might be a more micro level set of factors related to so, what some economists have called internal brain drain, whereby uh, educated professionals seek employment opportunities in international NGOs, which tend to offer higher salaries and more benefits and this sort of thing. And so there's an incentive on the part of providers to work in these kinds of places and to maintain good relations with them. 
Um, so that might be part of what's going on. Again, these are average effects, so these don't explain uh, you know, absolutely every single case, and they don't uh, obviate uh, the professionalism and altruism of doctors, but this seems to be an important factor at play. Now, the second thing I wanna highlight is the possibility that public health imperatives or perceived public health imperatives might be at play. And so we were looking at, you know, if, um, if those centers that have a partnership with international NGOs are providing superior care to refugees on average, what's going on in the rest of centers which don't actually supply inferior care? It seems to be roughly equitable. And one factor that showed up again and again and again, unprompted in qualitative follow-up interviews with doctors is this perception that refugees were potentially or actually spreading infectious diseases. And so we saw in multiple interviews, again, unprompted, that doctors uh, referred to Syrians as uh, carrying infectious diseases, particularly this uh, one disease, uh, leishmaniasis, which is uh, a communicable disease that's waterborne. And uh, particularly at the time of our data collection, there was an outbreak of this, and there's a number of public health papers referring to this. And it manifests in a rash on the skin. So we had data on what patients were exhibiting, what kinds of symptoms, including rash. And we have some evidence that um, that, uh, that Syrians with a dermatological uh, symptom or a rash symptom uh, were getting more attention in centers that did not have an international partnership. Um, so this seemed to be in line with what we were hearing in all of these qualitative interviews and suggests that when there's a perception that a population is a vector of a communicable disease, it might induce providers to exert more effort. Um, and, uh, and, and so, um, so that might be another factor. So, um, so what we're finding potentially is that, you know, despite the fact that some providers have reported negative attitudes towards uh, refugees, um, this does not affect their professional behavior. They are supplying equal or, you know, in some cases even superior care to uh, refugee patients. Um, and this, by the way, uh, the, the attitudes that were articulated, and I don't have time to go into them in the interviews, are very much in line with this public health literature that I referenced earlier. So, um, so you know, this raises interesting questions about, um, first of all, you know, uh, whether the important thing is to focus on incentivizing providers to perform at their, um, you know, at their, uh, uh, at, their, at the frontier of their technical capabilities and worry about attitudes later. Um, and then also what kind of role can international NGOs play in supporting professionals to supply uh, social services? What kind of role do public health imperatives play in affecting the performance of providers? Um, so, so I think this opens up some interesting questions about the role of international NGOs in, um, in supplying services and how this interacts with um, the existing capabilities of providers and facilities in the host country. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Melanie. Uh, exciting and a stimulating presentation. Um, we have one question now. Um, 
shall we perhaps answer this question? It's uh, I guess it's related to the presentation, and then we keep the the questions, the more general questions, for later. So uh, it's uh, from uh, Fouad, and uh, and uh, the question is, Melanie, this is a great presentation. Uh, did you see any differences in attitude in offering care among the different geosectarian areas? So should I go ahead and address the question now, or? Yeah, if you feel like, and we can uh, then keep other uh, other questions perhaps for later. This one felt like. Uh... Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I can't say that we have at this point. Um, and if we start slicing and dicing the data, we might get into a really small n problem. Um, it could be worth looking at descriptively. I will say that we are working on a third paper, which builds on a paper we published based on a pilot study uh, several years ago. And in that paper, we found some evidence that secular NGOs were providing superior care. We have a whole argument about why that might be the case. And we've started to look at some data relevant to that and find that there's differences in urban and rural areas, which might have something to do with the landscape of options in urban and rural areas. Um, so that's something that is a question we're looking at into uh, in more detail in a, in a subsequent paper we hope to work on out of this project. Um, but I can't say that we've seen variation by um, type of, you know, the religious affiliation of the provider. I'm not sure I even want to go there because that could be sort of explosive, but, but we have not seen evidence of that based on our data at this point. Yeah. Thanks. So uh, I see other questions coming, but perhaps let's see. Let's see. Let's keep them for later. Uh, it's also great. I'm informed that, that uh, we have a, 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 a co-speaker followers on Facebook, which is great. So our audience is uh, is, uh, is multimedia. Um, on this note, perhaps uh, I will give the floor to Asla and uh, and move to the second presentation, which is uh, on a connected uh, topic, and it's uh, of course focuses on Turkey. Um, Asl, uh, the floor is yours. And, uh... Perfect, thank you. Um, I think our work is going to complement Melanie's perfectly because we're going to focus on state provision of healthcare in Turkey and we're going to focus on social economic inequalities rather than ethnic and religious um, diversity. So I think they fit quite well in informing what's going on in healthcare in the Middle East. This is a joint project with Sarkant Adıgüzel from Duke University and Gözde Çörekçoğlu from Kadir Has University um, in Turkey. And in this presentation, I'm briefly going to talk about um, a healthcare reform that the AKP has started in Turkey around 2005. And the implementation of this reform continued all the way to 2010, and AKP obviously had some political um, ambitions through the implementation of this project, and through the implementation of this project, they uh, gained significant electoral gains, at least in the context of Istanbul. Sorry, Aslı, we don't see your presentation. Uh, we see uh, you are sharing your screen, but we don't see the, the presentation. Yeah, now we do. Perfect. So if I go full screen, do you see it now? Uh, no. Okay. Well, perhaps I should just keep it. Um, yeah. Okay. I'll just work on it like this. Great. Okay. So today I'm going to be talking about uh, preventative healthcare 
in Turkey. Um, before 1961, there were not a lot that was done in order to provide everybody in the country universally with preventative healthcare. The country was perhaps uh, focusing more on the uh, after-war crisis of several um, healthcare problems. But the first steps to systematically provide universal healthcare began in 1961 with the introduction of the law on the socialization of health. And this law introduced the building of local health centers, Salik Oja in Turkish, to serve approximately to 5,000 people to 10,000 people in the country. And until um, 1980s, the country has invested a lot of resources into building these clinics almost everywhere in the country and tried to solve the problem of the lack of preventative and primary healthcare in many places. And um, as the time passed on with the increasing population, the clinics became overburdened by the workload and the insufficient geographic coverage. One problem with these clinics were that they were not built depending on a population rule, but rather they had uh, geographical catchment areas. And especially in really populated dense cities, this became a problem because in places like Istanbul and Ankara, as the population increased substantially with the movement of a population from rural places to uh, urban places, these clinics became really overburdened. Um, for example, to give an example from the country, there were almost 11,000 patients per clinic nationally, but this number raised to 25,000 patients per clinic in Istanbul. And as these clinics became overburdened, people started to use either private versions of uh, preventative healthcare centers, or they started going to the hospitals for receiving preventative and primary healthcare, which in turn created a lot of socioeconomic diversity in who can access what, and also it overburdened the hospitals and this has become a major uh, problem in the country. And obviously AKP came to power in 2002, and one of its promises was to make sure that to provide for everyone, uh, independent of financial resources and socioeconomic um, backgrounds, and equal uh, access to healthcare. In 2005, the AKP government launched what's known as the Family Medicine Program. And uh, for one thing, this was put on the agenda of the government to accelerate the harmonization process in the EU, because in most places in the EU, you have one family practitioner who is responsible for a population rather than having health clinics based on a geographical catchment area. So in part, this was done to harmonize the process, uh, accelerate the harmonization process with the EU, but the main goal of the government was to attain widespread electoral support for transforming the laggard healthcare system to keep its promise, especially to those who didn't have the enough financial resource to, uh, resources to go to the private clinics or privately, um, private doctors in most places in Turkey. 
Um, and you could see this from the, um, from the uh, commercials that AKP has circulated around the country. And here, obviously, this is written in Turkish, but you can see Erdogan saying, we have invested in the hospitals, we have um, with this healthcare reform, we stop the long queues in the hospitals and we really improve the healthcare system for all. And here you can say it, see it says it was a dream and now it is real. So the AKP had political ambitions through this project as well. And just to give you a bit more information about this program, the family medicine program assigned each Turkish citizen, regardless of income, occupation, ethnic or religious background or party affiliation to a family physician. And the Ministry of Health's aim was to assign at most 3,500 citizens per family, citizen, family physician to ensure an equal distribution of resources in the country. Um, although they tried to make this equal and they tried to make this universal, the effect of the reform was not homogenous in the country, especially not in Istanbul. Because in rich places like the Adalar district, for example, the islands in Istanbul, there were already 3,500 3, citizens per doctor, but in densely populated and poorer areas like Umrania, for example, it was almost around 40,000 citizens per health clinic. So you can see it didn't start from an equal, um, equal provision anyway, so the effect of this reform was not homogenous on people with different socioeconomic characteristics. And to see if AKP gained any electoral gain from this reform, we're going to be using data from Istanbul where the, these healthcare clinics were established rapidly within the last three months of 2005. Um, obviously to increase the patient to doctor ratio, the government needed to build a lot more clinics, right? Um, and they had to build these places pretty homogeneously throughout the city. However, there is a problem in an old city like Istanbul with high population and building density, there are simply not enough empty lots to build new clinics. And this is just a screenshot from Google Maps. Um, and this is one of the most densely populated areas in Istanbul. This is again taken from Umrania where there was almost 40,000 people per uh, doctor before the implementation of the reform. And as you can see, there is really nowhere to build new clinics, right? And the government and the directorate of the health became, uh, came with a really clever and um, creative way to solve this problem. They requested doctors who were appointed to be working in these new family healthcare clinics to come up with office spaces within their catchment area that would comply with the new code of the clinics. And obviously this was really hard for many doctors because um, as you could see, Istanbul is a really highly dense area and um, the family health center code was actually really strict. So it was really hard to come up with places that would fulfill all the requirements of the code. So actually the doctors became really overburdened with this 
extra burden on them. And the doctors were not happy with this reform at all. They really were against this. And when they, um, when they presented their problems with this reform, Erdogan actually um, was angry with them and he kind of made all these populist speeches about how the doctors didn't want the um, easy access to healthcare for all in the country. So this was a point and a source of uh, contention between the doctors and the um, government at the time. Again, I'm going to show you a map from Imrani, the one of the highly dense areas in Istanbul. And here, the white dots show the older health clinics. And the red dots are the new health clinics that this, this district got after the implementation of the reform. Um, and as you can see, this, there was a big change. There were many, many, many uh, new clinics that opened and after the reform, 40 patients per clinic decreased to 3,500 3, patients per doctor. So there was a big improvement in this district, for example. Um, so what we did to figure out if the reform gained votes for the AKP, we tried to figure out how the uh, walking distance to the closest health clinic changed as a result of this reform. And to do that, just coming back to the previous slide again, um, in Turkey, polling stations are schools, so we measured the distance of a polling station to the nearest health clinic before the reform, and we also did this exercise for after the reform as well. And we tried to calculate the differences in walking distance to the closest health clinic because of this reform. And um, the reform is implemented in Istanbul in 2010. So we look at the differences between elections, each election in Istanbul, and we try to see if differences in walking distance to the closest health clinic had a significant impact on the electoral success of the AKP at the polling station level. We also look at the heterogeneous effects. Um, so we collected house price data for neighborhoods. We also calculated the dependency ratio. In other words, the ratio of children and older adults in a neighborhood to figure out who needed these clinics the most in Istanbul. We also, I'm also going to show you evidence um, showing how these different aspects, how these different measurements of need impacted the vote of the AKP as a function of decreasing walking distance to the closest um, after's place. So this is just um, the main result. I'm not going to talk more much about this, but here we have the change in the walking time and here we have the AKP vote share at the polling station level and decreases in walking time actually had a significant impact on increasing the AKP vote share within a polling station uh, level. Um, who cares about accessibility? So in the beginning of the presentation, I told you that it was actually the poorer individuals who had problems accessing to the preventative healthcare before the reform. And here we have the property prices 
And here we have the marginal effect of changes in walking time on AKP vault. And actually here you can see it's places with lower house prices that really had um, increased their vault shares to AKP as a result of their increasing accessibility, geographic accessibility to healthcare. So we see that the results are actually driven by those who live in poor neighborhoods. Finally, I'm going to show you evidence about dependency. And again, the result is similar here. We see that people who really needed these clinics, people who had more kids or in places with higher ratio of older residents disproportionately uh, voted for the AKP um, as a result of this reform as the walking distance to the clinics uh, got shorter we see it was the places with higher dependency ratios that disproportionately uh, voted for the AKP. Um, so just to wrap up Actually, this was a universal reform that aimed to make everyone better off. But obviously, because of the design of the system that was previously in place, it was the poorer districts that gained uh, more through this reform. And actually, those were the places that AKP aimed to get more votes. So at the end, um, through the implementation of this reform and sometimes at the expense of the family physicians, they were able to gain more votes through this health reform and their universal healthcare expansion policies. So I guess this is all I'm going to say for today. Thank you so much for coming and listening. Uh, thank you very much, Hassel, for the for the presentation. And uh, and which indeed was complementing very well was uh, was uh, told by Melanie. In a way, the the underlying thread, so the Firouge uh, connecting the two presentations, is uh, is on how to ensure so on uh, how the politics of a uh, health provision works in in countries around the Middle East and how in a way to ensure or how uh, healthcare provision is uh, is uh, is, uh, is better in, under which uh, circumstances. Um, before we uh, um, we move to the uh, to a discussion, I see two questions. So uh, the first one was uh, for Melanie's presentation from uh, Andy Simons, and uh, he's asking: In terms of charity healthcare in Lebanon, do Palestinian refugees get any non-UNRWA care beyond their camps? Specifically, Ain El Hilva, which uh, now has the most Syrian refugees, too. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Um, we actually, I can't really speak to this question so much, except to say that in our um, data, um, we don't actually get very many Palestinians. It's really uh, Lebanese and Syrians overwhelmingly and uh, a few uh, people from other nationalities like Sri Lanka or Ethiopia, um, but really the overwhelming populations are Lebanese and Syrian. So I would assume that many of the refugees that are registered as refugees are actually going to UNWA facilities. Um, and so, so we're not picking them up in this nationally representative sample of health centers in the, um, in the primary healthcare network. Uh, next question from uh, Paul Ottenborough. 
and uh, he's asking, there is a long history of negative attitudes towards Syrians in Lebanon, uh, back to the 19th century at least. So from the transitory seasonal migration workforces and the Bedouin taking local jobs, etc. Um, so is the Lebanese medical profession any different from the Lebanese population at large? Uh, from alleged differences in pay, working practice, etc. And have you measured or corrected for these? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's really hard. Can you imagine asking doctors, are you prejudiced against Syrians, right? It's really hard to get an answer to that question. Uh, and, you know, and many people who would, others would deem prejudiced don't think of themselves as prejudiced, right? So, um, so we tried to get at this in one way with our data. Uh, and then we tried to look at public opinion data from the Arab barometer, for example, and some other sources to see what we see when you, um, you know, look at the data based on the education level of the respondent and so forth. So in our own data, we did this conjoint experiment in which we had physicians in our survey uh, look at uh, examples of two hypothetical health centers and say, which one would you prefer to work in? And there were a lot of different attributes, one of which was the patient base, majority Syrian, majority Lebanese, and so forth. And then we had a number of other attributes which you would expect to shape doctor decisions about workplace uh, choices, including like the quality of the equipment, geographic proximity to your home, um, a whole bunch of other factors that would affect this choice, ability to build your practice and so forth. And, um, and because the, uh, one thing I didn't mention is that all of these doctors are not, almost all of them are not working full time. So in these centers, they're allocating a portion of their hours per week to either volunteer or work on a um, fee per patient or some other basis, which we control for. And, um, and so we do find evidence that doctors prefer not to work in majority Syrian centers. Um, now that's not a direct test of prejudice, obvious, obviously, but it controls for all these other factors that might also shape that consideration, the health profiles of the patients and so forth. Um, so that's one thing. As I said earlier, we do find evidence in public opinion data that even educated professionals don't want their kids to go to school with Syrians, don't want to live near Syrians, all kinds of stuff like that. So that's not just confined to lower income, low, lower educated portions of the population. Um, then we looked at, um, uh, we looked at what differentiates doctors who work in centers affiliated with international NGO partnerships and those who don't. I mean, do they get more altruistic or professional doctors? We actually don't find variation in that. The one difference we find is that they have higher levels of job satisfaction when they work in international partnered centers. These are not centers that are run by international NGOs, but they're receiving support from international NGOs. And um, so we find higher levels of job satisfaction, uh, which we think is consistent with this kind of internal brain drain argument. Um, but yeah, so, so based on the interview data and this apparent aversion to work in Syrian majority centers, when you couple it with uh, other kinds of public opinion data, we think that there is evidence that even doctors uh, exhibit some kind of prejudice against patients. And, uh, and the kinds of things that were articulated in qualitative interviews and in the reports, the fieldwork reports that doctors were saying with patients are completely in line with the public health literature on racial concordance. Um, you know, the same kinds of statements you see are completely in line there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, by the way, the same um, the person is asking, may we have copies of the presentations, please? Uh, I'm not sure if you are 
uh, happy to share them uh, or if we should give them instructions and um, uh, shall we perhaps ask uh, to email you directly perhaps email you personally and uh, I guess they can find your emails on your websites sure. um, so uh, next question from uh, Adam Adam Coates uh, again for Melanie uh, as you know, the Lebanese health and welfare system has been hugely weakened, weakened by the quadruple uh, warming of the refugee crisis, economic crisis, COVID, and the August blast, uh, topped off with a large dose of political mismanagement. Uh, lots of stuff, indeed. If I'm a donor like the bank, you or FCDO, uh, where do I put my funds for health system rebuilding? Uh, do I put any? Costly question. Um, this is a tough one, boy. Um, I mean, you know, I do think that um, there's evidence based on studies we've done and others have done that this primary health care upgrading initiative that the Ministry of Public Health has led has led to some positive changes. Um, I know that the Ministry of Public Health gets slammed and the government gets slammed for the quality of service delivery, but as you rightly point out, there's been enormous strains on this healthcare system, so we shouldn't discount that. I mean, I don't know what would happen in the United States, which has arguably a, an equally dysfunctional health system, uh, if this these kind of combination of crises faced it. But, um, but I think there's some evidence that the ministry has been working quite effectively to improve the quality of care uh, through a variety of incentives. And based on the evidence that we find, this combination of coordination between the ministry and external resources has seemed to improve um, the quality of care that Syrians face. Uh, and so maybe that's the, that's the way to go. Now, I want to emphasize that all of these facilities in our sample are Lebanese. They are not international NGOs running them. It's just international NGO support. And this was part of a coordinated process um, through the Lebanese Crisis Response Plan in cooperation with the Ministry of Public Health. So if there's a way to capitalize on this partnership to incentivize care, then uh, that's what I think our findings would suggest. Yeah, thank you. And uh, there is a somehow related question from uh, Taif uh, from uh, the Middle East Center, and it's specifically on the, on the information on the current economic crisis and, and its impact on the, on the provision of healthcare in the country. So I don't know if you have anything to add compared to what you just answered to, uh, to the previous question. So on the impact of the economic crisis on, the, on healthcare provision. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, our study, in if, you, if I'm gonna stick strictly to the data, I can't speak about uh, the impact uh, as a result of the current crisis because we don't have you know, data from the current period, but I can only imagine based on what I've been reading that it's terrible. I mean, you know, it, we, our measure, our outcome measure is provider effort. Um, and, uh, and we choose that measure because a, a number of studies, particularly the work of Jishnu Das and his collaborators and others have showed that the real binding constraint in a lot of cases is effort and that, you know, a provider, uh, you know, can work in, you can be a patient in a center with the greatest equipment in the world, but if your provider is not performing well, then you're not going to get good health care. So that's the real binding constraint. But that said, when providers are under this much strain, and they are just under tremendous strain dealing with the pandemic and the economic crisis, 
there's a limit to you know what any single uh, uh, even selfless uh, altruistic human can do. So I would imagine that this has had a terrible effect given the stretch in personnel and not to mention resources. Um, and so, you know, and, and, you know, turning to the Turkish context, um, it seems like we're dealing with a very different situation in Lebanon than Turkey, where, you know, um, which has also received an enormous number of, of refugees from Syria, probably more in absolute terms, not in per capita terms. And the Turkish state is, you know, whatever the critiques are, the Turkish state is much more capable of dealing with this and has more resources. So I'd actually be curious to hear, uh, you know, to learn more about the experience there as well. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, next question for Asta, and in a, in a way is on the, so if we, if we see again the connection between the two presentations, the first one is, uh, or the Melanie's work is suggests is showing how there is a sort of INGO effect and the public have concern that it's driving uh, positive delivery. In your case, in the Turkish case that you showed us, is more of the, the political, the, the, the political proselytism using uh, Melanie's uh, terminology. So a party, the AK party, who try, who wanted to, to gain concern, to gain uh, uh, support and not decided to increase the service. So uh, first of all, is this uh, good? Is it replicable to other contexts? So, uh, to what extent can be can the Turkish model replicated to other places, especially thinking about the driver there was mostly political? Yeah, um, thank you for the question. So obviously, well, there are a lot of economics work on evaluating the impact of these changes on healthcare outcomes, and the economists have found that this um, reform, especially the family medicine reform have improved outcomes uh, in terms of antenatal care, child vaccination, the percentage of people who use these uh, government-provided healthcare facilities. So looking at the economics literature, it looks like this has worked in a really positive way in a short term. But when we were collecting data for this project and when we were on the field talking with doctors, doctors have a different idea about what's, what will be the impact of this sudden change and burden on doctors in the long term. Because um, obviously I talked about this during the presentation, the doctors were under a great, great, great pressure to find these um, places, rent them, renovate them, making sure that these places were up to the code. And this was one challenge, but the AKP government um, did other things as well. For example, they limited the doctor's ability to work in private centers if they were in some way affiliated with the government. So, for example, a lot of the university professors who were medical doctors were working part-time at university hospitals and on the other time they were working for private hospitals or they had private offices. And the government made this illegal and a lot of these, these really great doctors, professors just flee from the um, public universities to these either private universities or they just left working for the government and just started working in their own personal and private offices. Now the long-term implications of this is not clear because on one way it's great that you're trying to curb the private initiatives of the doctors and try to make everything 
free and accessible for everyone in the country. But in the long term, this was done at the expense of doctors. At least doctors think this. And they flee from these governmental institutions. And it's not clear what's going to be the long-term educational impact on this, on the future doctors, as well as how the quality of provision changed in these easily accessible um, healthcare facilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's in a way it seems uh, from uh, from the, the suggestion it's uh, like it's a it's a was a broadly societally speaking a redistributive policy policy so helping driving resources from a yeah from a doctor serving the, the upper class to more probably working class and lower classes which uh, then of course uh, created winners and 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 also losers and lots of unhappy people. Uh, in a way, uh, connected to this, uh, is, do you think is there a sort of a paradox of a democratic uh, deconsolidation? In a way, it's, uh, and, and this is a question broader to the specific presentation, but it's uh, to the case of Turkey. So the government, which is, uh, I mean, generally discussed as a, as a case of a, a democratic, uh, competitive authoritarian regime, so winning by elections, but being very undemocratic in many ways. So. Was the, this reform instrumental for them to gain support? So in a way, by providing a policy which was a, a redistributive, so it was a good policy, the government indirectly managed to hold and gain support, which then they used as a tool to, to increase their grip on power. What do you think on this? Um, yeah, um, we think, well, me and my co-authors think this is actually somehow hopeful for places like Turkey, which still has um, competitive, although maybe unfair elections, because you see that a good service provision, a universal service provision is still, it gets votes for the incumbent, which is what we would want from democratic accountability, right? For democratic accountability to work, you have to have good incumbents and they have to see electoral results. So it's encouraging to see that the government tries to gain votes through service provision, however imperfect the ways of doing that might be. So we think it's still good news that we're seeing this, we're seeing accountability is working to some degree in Turkey. Yeah, in a way it also shows that it's uh, the voters are voting for the party, for the incumbents, not for ideological reasons, but they are yeah, they are they are objective. The way they they keep voting the the, the government because they they saw some advantages, some material advantages. Uh, in a way, perhaps. Yeah, especially with these local public goods, it also works as an information treatment, right? When something, I mean, it was the doctors usually who granted these offices, but obviously these are governmental offices at the end. So when you see government working in your neighborhood, you also have this information treatment telling you that, oh, actually the government is do doing a good job. They're trying to open up new clinics. They're trying to take care of us. So we also think this is another channel through which AKP gained uh, significant electoral support through this policy. Yeah, thank you very much. I see one more question from, uh, uh, again, we go back to, uh, to Lebanon from uh, Bathna. Uh, 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 Melanie, are, uh, what are the other challenges you've seen in the public health system of Lebanon to due, due to sectarianism? On the other hand, uh, are there any positive implications of uh, sectarianism on the healthcare system? 
Uh, yeah, thanks for this question. Um, this kind of relates back to some of the major themes I wrote about in my 2014 book, uh, Compassionate Communalism, which looked at the uh, welfare uh, provision by sectarian political parties. And I did find evidence that people that were more connected in partisan networks had access to more uh, welfare goods and more financial support for accessing healthcare and schooling and these sorts of things and other forms of welfare and charity. Um, so, you know, that can cut both ways. Uh, on the one hand, um, uh, if we believe that um, providing public goods in an inclusive way is a, is a form of building national political community, which is something that a number of scholars writing about um, uh, inclusion and national, and national uh, identity and, um, and the diversity public goods provision literature have suggested, uh, and something that perhaps the Lebanese president, Michel Shihab, tried to do back in the late 50s and early 60s by extending ref infrastructure across the country. I mean, he actually explicitly talked about this uh, building infrastructure as a strategy for building national political community in Lebanon. So if we think that's the case, then this is not good from the perception, from the perspective of building a sense of shared commitment to a national a political community. And particularly, you see this in the case of education, where schools run by different uh, communities actually teach a different form of Lebanese history. Um, so this is something you see in a lot of post-conflict settings, also true in Bosnia, Herzegovina as well. Um, so in that sense, uh, you know, there's, any, there's uh, uh, a negative ramification there. There's also potentially a gradient of inequality that goes along political lines. Um, somewhat akin to what Asli is talking about in the Turkish case, in that you know, political uh, affiliations or commitments or loyalties uh, affect access to care. I mean, this is not exactly what Asli is talking about. It's more the, you know, how care affects political behavior, sort of the reverse arrow, but, um, but you know, a, a similar family of arguments there. Um, on the other hand, if we think the sort of counterfactual is no provision because of uh, hindrances to the functioning of the system, then you might argue that this is a good thing because more people are able to access care. So it's a complicated question on normative grounds. I mean, in some ideal world, uh, if we're normatively committed to um, you know, a social, a civic conception of, of citizenship and equitable access to uh, opportunities and resources and welfare, then it you know, has negative ramifications. But if the counterfactual is not that idealized world, then we might see some positive effects for lower income people. Although it's not entirely clear that it's purely low income people that benefit from this in this case. Yeah, uh, so a final chance to ask questions. Uh, in the meantime, there is a final um, follow-up by Paul Attenborough. And uh, he say thank you for the previous uh, answers and uh, um, a small remark that the Ethiopian are usually domestic workers and recently have been discarded as the financial constraints on the Lebanese middle uh, and other classes are pressed. Has this uh, an impact? I mean, I think it's been really hard on domestic workers. Um, you know, this crisis has, all, I mean, the situation has always been incredibly difficult for domestic workers and this is something well documented by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, other organizations, but really it's been profound, the impact of the crisis. People have literally been thrown out 
of the homes where they were based and just you know had to fend for themselves and somehow get back to their home countries and a tremendous loss of income and so forth. So really the, the plight of these people is even worse than it was uh, prior to the crisis. It's, it's heartbreaking. Um, well, I guess uh, we are reaching the conclusion of this webinar. Uh, thank you very much for our listeners, for the uh, for those who are listening on uh, on Facebook, live on Facebook, and thanks especially for our guests. Uh, thanks to Asla and to Melanie for uh, for your uh, exciting presentations.